When I was a kid, well, you might be thinking, this is a kid. <laughs> when I was younger, <laughs> I played uh, way more hours than I'd like to admit playing a computer game called Fable. And the basic premise of the game is you're a character, you're a little orphaned boy, um, his whole village is destroyed by bandits, and, um, and he um, is, uh, you know, a wise man, a wise magician comes along and rescues him and, and brings him up and teaches him how to fight and do magic and, um, and to survive and whatnot. Um, and so then as you go out as this young man growing in stature and in strength and in loot and in treasure and weapons and whatnot, um, you can go on a variety of different quests and um, discover all kinds of treasure and whatnot. Uh, one, one of the features of uh, Fable is that there's an explicit little dial of how good or how evil you are. And so depending on what actions you do, um, whether they're good actions or bad actions, they can affect this pr particular parameter. And, and it explicitly states just how good or evil you are being. So you can loot and pillage and steal and destroy and become altogether evil. And the crowning achievement is you literally grow horns and you look quite demonic or else you can spread love and goodwill and save villagers from bandits and damsels in distress and drive away all those nasty things and quite literally develop a halo to signify your righteousness. Now, the perfectionist in me was quite frustrated because I had to be both perfectly evil and perfectly good in order to achieve all of the quests, because some of the quests are only available depending on your various temperament. And so I had to go through the game and achieve perfect good and perfect bad at various times in order to get all of the quests completed and get all of the weapons and all of those kinds of things. <clears throat> but the irony is, however evil or however good your character is, there's still the big bad boss. There's still the final evil that lurks around the corner and that eventually you have to fight in the end. And in relation to that evil out there, that evil around the corner, all of the evil and good that I did, all of my little dial, it mattered not a jot and a tittle because I'm not evil compared to that evil out there, that evil around the corner. Surely, real evil is out there, not in here. I think the game is a fitting fable for our modern sentiment. Who are we? Who am I but that I have defined myself? My fate, my destiny, my prowess, my valor is my own. For who am I but my own? What have you to say whether I am good or evil what have you to say whether I will pursue justice or villainy? For all we know, the badness of my choices does not define me. Real evil, real villainy, that's all out there. All matter of moral accountability can be exculpated with a few magic words and some wordplay and some conscious contortions. This type of moral relativism may be a little bit dated when we compare it to where we are in our current society, but I think it does serve as a representative example of the mind games that I can play to attempt to justify myself and my behavior. 
as philosopher and theologian Alan Noble points out, this is a downstream effect of our hyper-individualism where we are wholly our own. We are wholly a product of our own design, so we think. And these are just some of the responsibilities of self-belonging, as Noble calls them, to create an identity. We have the burden to create an identity, to create our own meaning, to create and choose our own values. Noble writes, in the absence of a shared system of values, humans gravitate towards values that are quantifiable. Specifically, the modern value of technique gives people a way to function in society without getting lost in our own personal preferences. One defining characteristic of technique is that in the modern world, it assumes all values under efficiency. Efficiency becomes the greatest good in a way of reassuring our conscience. Technique provides justification to everybody and gives all men the conviction that their actions are just, good, and in the spirit of truth. There is no space in contemporary life that has not become subject to the dominion of rational methods for achieving maximal efficiency, from the marriage bed to art to warfare. That's not to say we never prioritize other values. We certainly do. But our one agreed-upon value in nearly every sphere of life tends to be efficiency. The example is, you know, the, um, the CEO who talks about how their company prides themselves in giving time off and the justification is not the inherent goodness of taking care of their employees, but because it maximizes the employee's effort. And the methods for improving our lives that fill self-help books, podcasts, and conferences are exactly the way society aids us in our responsibility to determine what moral living looks like. Society can do very little to help us decide whether promiscuity or fidelity is ethical, since we are our own but it can provide us with the contraceptive methods, the married sex life strategies, and the erotic material to make our own choice efficient. This tremendous emphasis on personal op optimization reflects a society made for humans for whom efficiency is the greatest good. Do you feel that weight of self-belonging? Do you feel that burden to assert yourself and your, moral, and your actions as moral morally justified? Do you find all of your justifications boiling down to some matter of efficiency? How often do you rely on technique, as Noble calls it, to explain why your decisions and your actions are in fact just and righteous? The refrain that keeps pinging around in my head and I just can't get it out of my head this week is uh, Aaron Burr's line in the Hamilton musical, Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. As Burr, you know, is indulging in this affair with a married woman, Theodosia, who's married to a British officer, he can justify his infiltration of the marriage bed because it's love. It's love. Love is good. Love has captured me. I can't be in the wrong. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. Love is good. Love is virtuous. Therefore, my actions are pure. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. Brothers and sisters, do you feel that burden to prove yourself, to demonstrate how you are good and right, to bear the weight of your own moral value? 
to define yourself and to the world how you are always justified in whatever decision you make, that it was more efficient, that it was in the name of love, that it was in the service of rest, it was for the sake of the common good, it was that you needed a little bit more indulgence in order to be there for your family, that you just needed a little satisfaction so it's because it's not hurting anyone. As long as they don't find out, it's all okay. You do this little thing because it helps you cope with reality. It makes me a better person overall. Do you feel that? Does it reduce to efficiency? My friends, the good news is that you are not your own, but you belong body and soul to Christ. That is the good news that lifts this existential burden and dread of self-belonging and determination. And this is the good news that we see in our passage today. But before we fully appreciate the good news, we need to mete out the bad news. Today, as we look at this passage, we'll have three points to consider. The severity of sin, the work of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. Or perhaps we could say the sinner, the Christ, and the saint. So first, the sinner. Consider the sinner and the severity of sin. John writes in verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. At first glance, I think this seems like a distinction without a difference. How can we parse lawlessness from sinfulness? But John has chosen these particular words carefully. If you can, recall the context of this letter. John is writing to a church that has experienced the difficulty of schism, of false teachers who have left because they are preaching that there is goodness apart from Christ, that you can be perfect, that you can live righteously apart from Christ that you can achieve moral purity apart from Christ. And this disambiguation of moral superiority from the gospel truth can be seen through the lens of the Gnostic heresies that develop later. And they fundamentally can be reduced down to some simple ideas that the material world, the physical world, is inferior, and what we ought to be trying to achieve is the spiritual world, the good, which is spiritual, material, physical, is bad. This is obviously an oversimplification, but it's a helpful framework for us to consider. Uh, John Stott summarizes that this led several of its adherents, the Gnostic adherents, to some different conclusions. Some supposed that their possession of special knowledge of Gnosis had made them perfect. Others got caught up in uh, the idea that sin did not matter because it could not harm the enlightened. If you can be caught up into this spiritual knowledge, you can remove yourself from the blemish of the material and achieve the perfect. Or perhaps with this special knowledge, you'll be able to put a barrier, a divide between the material and the spiritual, allowing you to be perfect over here in your sinless spiritual state, while your sinful body state considers, continues over here doing whatever it would like since it cannot blemish your transcendence. In this way, I think we can begin to get an idea of what the false teachers uh, meant when they were removing the distinction of lawlessness from sinfulness. You may be sinful, but that's just your body, just your material corporeal self. But if you know, if you like 
really, really know, you know. You have the special knowledge, but then, then you can achieve this perfection of the spiritual. Brothers and sisters, I don't need to explain to you that this is a false distinction. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may give due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. We cannot escape the fact that the sinfulness heaps iniquity on the sinner. Sin is lawlessness. We cannot escape the compunction to live by a standard outside of ourselves. However much we may excuse and defend and numb and avoid and pretend otherwise, we are not our own. We do not establish our own basis of iniquity. We are not responsible for our own self-belonging. Sin is lawlessness. It is a transgression of God's law and requires a payment and a penalty for the iniquity. We can't escape that fact. But if sin is lawlessness, sin is also rebellion against God. Whoever makes a practice, John writes, of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. From the garden, in Genesis 3, we see that the devil has worked to turn God's good things into evil, to corrupt and malign that which was good to achieve, that which is contemptible and vicious and wrong. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan asks. This is the way that the devil operates in the world, rebelling and corrupting and deceiving. What then if you do the same? Can you explain away your infidelity saying, love doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint? Hardly. John writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, which is to say, whoever makes a practice is aligned with the devil, does things in the same way the devil does them, flies the same flag as the devil. The one who makes a practice of sinning allies himself with the devil in open defiance and rebellion against God. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint. What drivel. You are responsible for your sin, brothers and sisters. I am responsible for my sin, for sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. But friends, the good news is yet to come. We don't sit there. We don't stay there. Remember, we started with verse 1 today, because it is important to frame all of this in light of what John, this 90-year-old man, is telling this church, church, you already are the children of God. And then he goes on to tell them, sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. Friends, if you are condemning yourself, stop. For the devil came to condemn you and Christ came to forgive you. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. But Christ. John says, you know that Christ appeared to take away sins, and in him is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Our world was created good, but we are complicit in all the ways that it has been malformed and deformed to promote suffering and strife and enmity between us and God. But God was not content to leave our world to our own corrupt devices, but came down in the bodily form of Jesus Christ, putting on the flesh that we have been giving, living the perfect righteous life that we cannot live, living out the sinlessness that the false teachers pretend to know, accusing no iniquity against himself for sinfulness, but not putting himself in rebellion against God the Father. And why did he do all of this? Why did God come to us in the flesh? John says, to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. All the judgment that was owed for sinfulness, all the wrath of God that was due us for our iniquity, all the just and deserved punishment for our foolish equivocation and moralization and rationalizing, all that was nailed with Christ to the cross. All of that bitter cup of judgment was consumed by Christ. All of that condemnation that you are heaping on yourself and that I am heaping on myself and that the devil would love to use, all of that was smothered by Christ, by his righteousness. For in Christ there is no sin. And friends, the work of Christ means that, as Paul says in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The work of Christ means that sin's grip and power and dominion has been broken on this world. You and I no longer need to be held hostage to sin and Satan's domain. The work of Christ means that sin's power, sin's corruptions in this world are already being undone, remade, and redeemed. As Dostoevsky envisions, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finality, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. This, then, is the work of Christ, even now. Sin's influence and sway on this world is being undone, even now. Sin is being undone by Christ, even now. Even now, the works of the devil are being destroyed. You know, John says, you know, church, Little ones, you know he appeared to take away sins. The sinner, the Christ, and the saint. What has this to do with the saint? John writes, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The saint, the one who abides in Christ, the one who is a child of God, does not. Indeed, he cannot keep sinning, keep on sinning. Seems a bit strange. But I think there's a helpful analogy. Um, you know, there's a, a skill that I have absolutely no talent for, um, and that's to look at a baby or a kid and say, ah, they have their mother's eyes or their father's nose. But my wife has an incredible ability to point out a 
little speck on an ear and say, ah, that's the mother's, or this little curve on the toe, ah, that came from the father. I don't have any of that. I'm blind. But even for one who is blind as me, every now and then you'll see that kid and you'll be like, whoa, is this a Benjamin Button situation? Like, did that adult just become a baby? Like, I see that adult in that baby. And so here in these verses, theologian Marianne Thompson wants us to see that John is trying to explicate a similar idea. That the children of God will wear an undeniable resemblance to one whom they claim as a spiritual parent. And that resemblance comes to the fore primarily in the sphere of conduct, in the way a child lives out the responsibility summarized in the descriptive phrase, does what is right. Our actions, our behavior, they ought to be indicative of our being, of our state of justification, of our adoptions as children of God. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. Does that feel inconsistent with you, with your life? It does for me. Does it feel incompatible, incongruous to understand how we are a sinner and we are a saint We are a child of God and we are persistently sinning. The one who has seen Christ or known him cannot keep on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, but I keep on sinning. I keep choosing that which I know is not right. I keep making much of myself rather than others. I keep delighting in my own pleasure rather than taking joy in serving others. I keep sinning. Sin doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep living anyway. How can I be saved then? How can I be a child of God? Friends, I think it's important to sit in this paradox, in this tension. But we also need to be careful to read this verse in the context of what John has already written. In 1.8 and 1.10, he wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make Christ a liar. We are not perfect and sinless when we become children of God. We persist in fighting the sin that we hate. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate, as Paul says. But we have also been given that redemption and cleansing from our sin already. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 2, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will not be has not yet appeared Friends, I uh, was thinking of this this week um, in considering the news of uh, Hamas and the attack on Israel. And uh, I had a a professor of of Muslim theology who described how um, the highest um, guarantee that you would get into heaven was uh, was was committing was was doing these acts of violence of of suicide. 
but that their theology of Allah's sovereignty is so great and that he is so far above humans that you can't even make a claim upon Allah that you will get into heaven if you do something so violent and reprehensible. And our God says, you are my child now. And that is our claim. And so we live in that. Beloved, we are God's children now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. All this is true. And John is not contradicting any of it in what we examine today. However, we are meant to sit into this. We are to sit uncomfortably, ever so uncomfortably upon the contradiction that we embody, that when we, as children of God, choose to pursue what we see as good in our own eyes, when we, despite being children of God, choose to despise our neighbor, to condemn our neighbor, to spurn and admonish our neighbor, to judge and castigate our neighbor, we confess, as the Anglican prayer book teaches us, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We are the sinner. And we are the saint. We walk in sinfulness, but we are reborn of God, made to walk in righteousness. We embody this contradiction that in ways that ours feel so discomforting and alien. We try to force our lives. We try to Force it to conform to the pattern of righteousness. We say, I will be good. I will do right this time. What hope have I, though, a sinner? We try technique. We try effort. We try to confront our failure to live as children of God, and yet we persist in the contradiction I am a sinner. I am a saint. Sin doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep living anyway. How can we reconcile these? We can't. Caravaggio was one of the great Italian painters. He uh, painted in the style of Curiascuro, um, which uh, was utilized before him by Titian and Raphael, which they attempt to convey drama through the use of light and dark. And Caravaggio took, uh, made a kind of emphasis on this, developed a new style called tenebrism, which should sound familiar with our tenebrae service, our Good Friday service, and the use of light and dark to take this beyond drama to provocation. And Caravaggio had this incredible ability to portray the transcendent and the sacred, to draw the viewer in to consider that which was rationally incomprehensible. But he did so through painting the common experience, the, the common, the simple, the mundane. Pastor Russ Ramsey helps to draw out some of the genius of Caravaggio's work. In the sacrifice of Isaac, for example, Abraham clutches a knife in one hand while his other hand grips a fistful of his son's hair. We can practically feel the pain and aggression in the tightness of Isaac's scalp. The patriarch's body is turned towards his son, indicating this was the precise moment when he was about to go through with this unthinkable act. 
but his head is turned as if suddenly toward the angel who is presented more in human terms than divine. Only his feathered wings give away his identity. Abraham's face is racked with anguish. He is already grieving, already feeling the weight of what he is doing to his only son. But the angel's expression is calm and de-escalating as he caresses with his right hand a ram whose chin rests peacefully over Isaac's knee. By setting the divine rescue in the context of human agony the whole, of the whole situation, Caravaggio tells the sacred story by way of emphasizing the profane. This uncanny ability to draw out this contrast of the profane and the sacred, the holy and the simple. Caravaggio used uh, peasants and prostitutes as his models. He wanted to portray real life. He wanted his own experience to come through in the paintings. He uh, was tortured um, and uses that torture to add to the gore and the visceral and the grotesque. But bursting through the common, bursting through the mundane, bursting through the vile, it's easily to be provoked by the sacred, the transcendent, the holy that pokes its head through. The life of Caravaggio, he kind of lived out his paintings. Uh, one biographer wrote that he lived between Carnival and Lent with no space in between. He was painting and he would paint with a ferocity and paint phenomenal pieces pieces that are hung all over the world and are still enjoyed as one of the most masterful painters of the world. And then after his commission, he would gamble it and waste it away on various licentiousness. <laughs> one story is told of uh, a man woke up in the hospital and says that he remembered Caravaggio coming up on him and Caravaggio said, ah, it was a roof tile that suddenly fell and smashed your head in. Caravaggio liked to live on the edge. <laughs> there was nothing but carnival and Lent in his life. I think that is a caricature, perhaps, or an image of our lives. We are the sinner and we are the saint. We provoke the transcendent. We provoke the holy. We provoke the sacred because of our weakness. And yet, despite all of our insufficiencies and despite all of our weaknesses, despite all of our failures, we are now children of God. And Christ comes through that, through the mundane, through the weakness and says, ah, there is no condemnation now. One of the ways we exist in this contradiction is we pretend we are the sinner with no consequence for sin. We err on the side of pretending that sin is of no consequence, that sin is of no matter, that we can justify it away, that we can rationalize it away. Or perhaps some of you fit more in the quote-unquote saint. We can fix our sin by my own effort. I will be the child of God by being good enough. I am not good enough, therefore I will be good enough that I can be a child of God. 
And John masterfully takes this tension and does not resolve it for us, but says, look, look, both of you, to Christ who says, you are my child now, little children, beloved, look and see now the great love that God has given to us, that he has made you his child now. And how do we exist in that contradiction? How do we exist in understanding that we are simultaneously the sinner and the saint? That we simultaneously exist as Apollo, the upright, the perfect, the upstanding, and Dionysus, the the wine, the drunkard, the partying, and we exist in both of these. And how do we hold in this tension? How do we exist in this contradiction? Not easily but we look to Christ. We look to Christ who is, as the theologian James Stewart writes, we look to Christ who is a startling coalescence of contrarieties. He manages to entertain simultaneously things that seem so diametrically opposed. He exists in paradox, and we cannot help but be overawed by it. And his example sets before us what it looks like to live in paradox, friends. Hear now the words of James Stewart about Christ. He was the meekest and the lowliest of all men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him, and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, and yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others. Yet at the last, he did not himself save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Friends, we exist in the contrast. We exist in the diametrically opposed. We are the sinners and we are the saints. Look to Jesus, for he says, you are my child now. And in looking to Christ, in clinging to Christ, there alone will we find the ability to grow in righteousness, to learn to be righteous. It is not by our own, by our effort, by our will, but it is in the humble submission to the Lordship of Christ. Friends, look to Christ. Let's pray. God, you are paradox. You invite us into contradiction, God. And yet you 
have given us the resolution, the resolve. We know that we look forward to the day when we will be like you. We look forward to the day when all of the sinfulness, all of the weaknesses, all of the imperfections, all of it will be unwritten and redeemed and washed away for good. But now, God, we live in this moment when my sinfulness seems so great, when the world's sinfulness seems so great, when people are killed, when people are maimed, when so many people are hurt by me, by my actions, by my words, and by the world's actions and the world's words. God, help us to see the evil that is out there and that is in here, in my own heart. But God, you have made us your children now. Your Holy Spirit is given to us and resides in us and lives in us that we can live as you would have us. That any amount of righteousness that we can do and behave, God, is by you. Help us to see you. Help us to see you high and lifted up and lifted up and simultaneously down and beside us washing our feet, God. You are a paradox. And you alone can fill the void, the vast chasm between us, the sinner and the saint. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.